Hello, everyone. It's December 1st, 2020. Well, Rocket Lab had a first stage recovery, or at least the next closest thing. It won't be long now before we have two companies bringing back and reusing first stages. How awesome is that? Okay, well, let's get into all the details we know so far and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 287 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So we're forecasting to get two inches of snow this week. It got down to freezing where I live, but obviously, well, not obviously, but no snow. Um, it, it doesn't snow too often, but um, winter is finally here. So although I wouldn't be surprised if it still went back up to like 70 degrees next week or something, because, you know, <laughs> that's how weather works in yep. many parts yep. of the country. So, and yeah, you're back in the north now, so you're going to have to readjust. Yeah. Yeah, it's I know. A proper snowfall. Well, we'll see. It, it tends to alternate back and forth here, uh, a year with heavy snow, a year with no snow. I think mostly just due to climate change induced chaos. Uh, but what'd you guys do for Thanksgiving? I tend to celebrate Thanksgiving with like when I go to visit my mother. So it's, you know, it can be like a little bit delayed. Um, this year, I don't know, because of, you know, COVID and all of that, I don't want to get my hopes up, I guess you could say, you know, that I'm going to go visit yeah. family. And I was mm-hmm. like, you know what, I'm just going to chill and not go anywhere um, because I'm still a little bit worried about, you know, my parents, frankly. Yeah. CDC says uh, even if you have access to testing, it's not safe to travel. You brought up a good question. How do you get tested if you like or how does one get access to testing? Do you just go by your local like hospital yeah. or something? It, or? It, depend, it depends on your area where I am. You have to have. Well, I don't know if this is true for everybody, um, but if you have symptoms, uh, if you're a student mm-hmm. down at Penn State, if you have symptoms, they'll test you. Um, and actually Penn State does ran- daily random testing for students. Um, it's not, it's not super rigorous. Um, they, they don't do enough testing, but it is a weighted random for higher risk people. There are issues, but you know, whatever. But I mean, I, I think most people can go, if they have a primary care provider, they can go and get tested. The, the big hospital around here, um, Mount Nittany, um, they only test if you have physician orders. So you have to go through your primary care. But I, I know that in some parts of the country, it's more widely available and you, you can, you know, set an appointment at a drive through testing station and, and get either a rapid test or a, a longer PCR test. Yep. That's how Tucson is. Boy, we, we better get off uh, COVID because we, we kind of promise not to be a, a COVID show. <laughs> Rocket Lab. They had a launch, they had a booster recovery, and Ben, I think you were part of a conference call of some sort, or mm-hmm. not a conference call, that's not what they call it, right? Or do they call it that? I don't it, know. I mean, it was a it was a press conference, but yeah, I mean, it, it was on Press Zoom. conference call. Yeah. There you go. How did that go? It, it was really good. They, they actually answered a question that I submitted, um, which isn't terribly surprising because they actually answered every question that was asked mm-hmm. um they they wound up getting through the whole line but i i was uh i was kind of surprised to hear my name called so we'll we'll talk about the question that i asked but basically they they did this uh press conference uh less than 48 hours after they got the stage back to the barn so this was really 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 early data um and and i'm sure we'll we'll hear more uh as as time goes on but uh, uh, Peter said that the stage was completely intact when it splashed down. Uh, it ended up taking some damage at sea. They were they recovered it in two meter ocean swell. 
So uh, it, it took a little bit of a beating. But uh, they slowed to Mach 2 before they deployed the chutes. And, of course, they have uh, a drogue chute, a pilot chute for the main. They deploy the main in a reefed configuration, and they go to the full unreefed uh, main. Um, he said that their splash down location was bang on. Uh, and he said that was really important because of the two meter swell. Um, it was, if you have to go searching for this thing, it, it's quickly gonna, <laughs> in two meter seas, it, it's quickly gonna get out of hand. And, and he said it, it wasn't uh, a great recovery uh, situation. They, they did have to you know, work hard to get it, but they got it. It did suffer some damage to the heat shield, and they're not going to be releasing photos just because of all of the um, the proprietary data. He's like, you know, it's just, it, it would be kind of a nightmare <laughs> to try to get this fit for release, so we're just not going to do it. But uh, even though the heat shield suffered some damage, the power packed uh, the, the power pack survived. Peter Beck said he, he was actually kind of shocked at how undamaged it was. It was, it was pretty pristine. Um, he said the interstage components looked like new and that the engines weren't bad. Um, but they're, they're probably not going to refly these engines, um, just because, you know, sitting in the ocean is pretty unfair on the engines is what he said. Um, so going forward, um, they are going to continue to do splashdowns, um, until they are happy with their results. They, they want, you know, basically everything to go perfect before they, um, start putting a pilot anywhere near this thing. Um, however, he confirmed that they've, uh, doubled down on air capture. This is going to be the way that they do it. Uh, he said, quote, pulling rockets out of the ocean just isn't fun. And, and I, uh, as much as I know, I, I tend to agree. And so basically, what they need to do before they can actually do that aero capture is they need to finish understanding the environment um, that the stage experiences on reentry. In addition to that, like so, so once they know what those environments are, they need to requalify all of their components uh, to be able to survive those environments. Um, in this case, they've already started breaking down the stage and they can requalify um, some of the components like ex post facto, like instead of um, designing them and qualifying them so that you know that you can reuse them, they will um, put them through very rigorous testing to make sure that they weren't um, damaged. And they do plan to refly some of the components that were recovered on return to flight or uh, return to sender um, on future missions. Like we, we have already seen a stage that that's going to get chewed up and, and spit back out which is uh, really, really cool. I'm trying to recall now if SpaceX did it in a similar fashion, right? Like, you know, you take certain components, you you know make sure that they're good to go, and then you refly just those because you can't refly the whole stage. But, I mean, you know, this is how you take those baby steps because it seems mm -hmm. like a really good idea. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just glad to see that so much actually did survive and seems to be in good working order. It's just, you know, yeah, you still don't want to dunk the whole thing in salt water. So I can see how it's, yeah. it's very important to do the air capture. And that'll be just... A, cool sight to see that's also why that I think why he said part of that um being able to uh hit the splashdown location so accurate accurately will be very important right i mean mm -hmm. if you have to dispatch your you know your helicopter a mile or so away you want to really make sure you're you're pretty darn accurate and, and well I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit when i we when we talk about how recovery actually works um but just 
Speaking of, of future launches, uh, a really great question was asked uh, whether uh, how much weather affects recovery and whether um, poor recovery conditions um, will result in launch aborts, basically. And he said, yeah, actually, um, depending on what the mission is, um, their intention is to um, give some amount of priority to uh, recovery efforts, meaning if they can't recover the stage, uh, they, they may or may not actually fly that day. They, they may wait until later, which is really cool. It turns out that they've been actually um, doing dry runs of their uh, weather simulation up till now. They've actually been you know, predicting landing zone or, or I guess splashdown zone, uh, weather conditions to hone their ability to predict, to predict them in the future. So, you know, up till now, it hasn't really mattered that much, but they're still, uh, working on that end of it. And, uh, there's a possibility that wholesale reuse. So re- reusing the entire first stage might happen as early as next year. Now, that's, that's a very, uh, um, sunny prediction that that's unlikely to happen, but you know, that's kind of the no earlier than date. Um, however, um, they absolutely are going to be reusing parts from this mission. Um, and in the future, they're hoping to be able to reuse engines. Um, I, I don't know if, if they're going to have, I think they're probably going to have to wait until they're doing aero capture to, to, to reuse engines, mm-hmm. but you know, that, that will, it sounds like they will be reusing parts of the vehicle before they before they do whole whole structure uh, reflights. So I think it was last week that we had some questions about how they actually do reentry and recovery and all that. Mm-hmm. Was that last week or the week before? Uh, might have been the week before, but Day I know two. that we yeah, definitely talked okay. about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It, it's really nice when you know we don't know something and we kind of go, "If anybody knows, let us know." And then you know, mm-hmm. a couple weeks later, we get a press conference and uh, the uh, the CEO of the company, the, the founder of the company, ends up answering a lot of our questions. And then I was able to ask a question that was directly answered that uh, actually answers a lot of the the things that we were wondering. So. All right. Yeah. So um, some of the questions that we weren't wondering about, but that I thought were interesting is that they do have two different configurations for recovered and not or, you know, reusable and not reusable, like expendable versus uh, reusable configurations. The main difference is the inner stage. Um, There's a whole different inner stage that they install depending on which mode they're going to fly in. Um, and what's really cool is they actually um, wait as long as possible um, during construction uh, to install the inner stage so that they have as much time as possible to decide um, what configuration they want to fly that vehicle in. Um, right now when they're flying in, in recoverable mode, um, even though they're, they're not actually doing, you know, really good recoveries right now their recoverable mode uh results in a 10 kilogram payload reduction uh or you know a capacity reduction um in the future they are hoping to be able to take uh, anywhere from two to five kilograms off of that reduction meaning that they uh will only suffer a five to eight kilogram uh, reduction in capacity when they're when they're flying in payload reduction mode or in uh, flying in recoverable mode, which is that's really good. <laughs> that's really fantastic. So 
once they have actually uh, separated the two stages, Peter described it as a dance between uh, ground and flight systems, um, where they're doing trajectory predictions um, with uh, the stage deciding where it is and the ground deciding where the stage is, and then kind of marrying the two and, and coming up with uh, an actual uh, final prediction. Uh, it's all done in real time. And right now they're, uh, they're very happy with their a- ability to predict where the, where the stage is going to come down. And their only major, uh, variable is the wind, um, which is, is pretty darn cool. Um, so more to our curiosity, uh, points. They do enter engines first. Um, and the reason that they do that is they want to be able to get the shock cone as far away from the vehicle as they can. And it, it sounds like, so obviously they're not doing, um, uh, supersonic retropropulsion or anything like that. They're not firing the engines back up. Um, however, flying engines first, A, is super stable. <laughs> it doesn't require a lot of work to do that. And B, um, they're finding that that is a, a good way to get the shock cone as far away from the vehicle as possible, which obviously um, uh, results in, in uh, uh, more ideal situations. So the question that I asked was specifically about the heat shield, what it looks like, uh, what it's made out of, uh, where it is, if it's going to change, if it's changed already. And, uh, the details were, um, few and far between, as you might expect. Yeah. However, uh, the design will be refined in the future. And before, uh, return to sender, they actually were talking about making changes for this very flight, but they, they ended up not doing that. But they, uh, Peter described it as a re-engineering. <laughs> so it sounds like they, they've got some pretty major changes, uh, that they plan, uh, to do. So right now, uh, they only have TPS material, thermal protection system material on the interstage. Um, they will, uh, have, they, they believe they will have to roll out, uh, TPS to cover more of the stage. Um, and, and that there's a huge range of what they could do. They, they could keep it entirely on the interstage. They could cover the entire vehicle. Um, but it sounds like, you know, obviously they want to cover as little of the vehicle as possible. He did not say this, but my impression is that it is, um, symmetric, like radially symmetric. Um, so I think it, it the question is just how far down the stage they're going to have to, to roll out the heat, the, the TPS. But again, this is, this is anyone's guess at, at the moment. Huh. I find it interesting that they would start, that they would put it on the interstage because it seems to me that that would be experiencing a much lower thermal load than, than, you know, the rest of the vehicle. Yeah. Cause you, you'd expect the, the cone to be widest at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's worth noting though, this, this is the final, like the, the TPS design for reentry, not just TPS in general. Correct. Yes. Right. So maybe they want to unroll their sort of new TPS at the interstage because it's the most protected, I guess, part of the returning booster. And then the parts that's going to get hammered at the base of the rocket is, you know, where they're gathering the data and then kind of figuring out what to do down there. That, that may be, that, that may be the case. I I suspect that the interstage really, um, has the most delicate 
instrumentation, the, the most delicate components inside of it. And so that's, that's where, true. um, you would like to do thermal insulation. And I don't know if they're, I don't, I don't believe their TPS material is particularly ablative. Like, I don't think they're losing a lot of material here. I, I think it's probably mostly insulation, uh, insulation and, and maybe like just some hardening to make sure that you don't, uh, burn the structure. I, I don't know, but I, I also think that. Uh, David, your, your intuition matches mine, uh, regarding where the heating is, is greatest. But, the, you know, there, there may also be something, uh, unexpected happening here where even though the shock cone is farther away from the vehicle, um, because the, the inner stage is far away from the strongest part of the shock cone, maybe, you know, more, uh, more heating winds up pinging off the back end of the vehicle, the front end is relatively protected by the shock cone. And I, I don't, I don't know. Hmm. Um, but I think that there are a lot of options that, that we're not going to be able to predict. Yeah. So the, the base of the stage, the, the dance floor, um, the, the bottom structure that covers the, uh, uh, the, the top of the, of the rocket engines has, uh, <laughs> I believe what, what, uh, Peter said was basic electron TPS as opposed to the inner stage TPS. Um, and, and Dennis, that's where you're, that's where you're coming with the, the, uh, the new versus old. I, I think I, I don't know what, what basic electron TPS is. I, maybe they've talked about that's it. It's by design. Prop, yeah. It's yeah. Probably just holding enough. that close to their chest. Yeah. yeah I, I think, yeah. I think you're right. And, and I don't know what the heritage is here. Wh- which way is this going? Is, is the basic TPS, the, the early version and the inner stage TPS is a later version? Um, it, I, I don't know. Um, it sounds like the, the, the TPS at the base of the stage has more to do with, um, what they were designing for ascent. That's what I was thinking. It's that he um, just meant, you know, what they've always needed just yeah. for the rocket to do its job. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So just, you know, just basic thermal blankets, uh, to, to protect the, uh, the bottom of the stage, the, the dance floor, uh, above the dance floor from below the dance floor. <laughs> I love that term, by the way. I, I didn't know it was that officially, not officially called that, but I remember the Falcon 9 having a quote unquote dance floor, but I didn't know that that's what, you know, we're all calling it I, now, which is cool. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's what what um, what Rocket Lab is calling it. I believe Tim Dodd on the call was the one who used the term dance floor, uh, and we know that he's a, a Falcon Nine fanboy, so mm-hmm. that that may just have wormed its way into his brain. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I, I I hardly endorse uh, wide distribution of the term. Yeah, I like it. All right, so that that's getting through the atmosphere. Uh, that that's not quite uh, having a safe at home stage. So you still have to go recover the stage. And one of the really cool uh, things that was brought up was the helicopter that they are using uh, to do the recovery. Check this out. They already have a recovery um, out of the Mahia Peninsula. And it's currently being used as a taxi. Um, the launch site is, is very remote and it's, it's a 40 minute drive to get there. And so what they do is they have this helicopter to be able to turn a 40 minute drive into a couple minute flight. And, um, so since this is already, uh, a resource that they have, uh, out there, this is going to be the same helicopter they're going to use to do the recovery. How cool is that? It's a taxi for people, so let's use it as a taxi <laughs> for rockets. 
And uh, the, the question was, how safe is this for the pilot to actually do this recovery? And it's actually pretty cool. Uh, the difference between a successful parachute deploy and an unsuccessful parachute deploy is about a mile distance. Like, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's pretty good. So they're, they're very happy having the, the helicopter loiter near the predicted landing site or the predicted, uh, splashdown site because if things go bad, it, it's, the stage will fail to reach that location. <laughs> uh, so, so that's, uh, well, I, you know, I guess it'll actually, uh, overshoot that location, but you know, yeah. it's, it's still, it's still a nice built in, uh, inherent safety margin. And then I don't, I don't know if we wanted to talk about the hat. Uh, do, do we want to talk about the hat? I had asked him about the hat once just because I thought it was funny. Yeah. And, uh, and to see if he wanted, if, if he was going to keep his word, which apparently he is. Yeah. Tim, Tim Dodd asked him about it. So the first thing he said was, uh, I, I'm not going to put another hat up regarding second stage recovery. Um, he, he's like, we're, we're not going to be able to recover the second stage, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to put another hat up, uh, against that. <laughs> However, uh, at that point, Tim Dodd uh, chimed in and said, okay, well, you, you mentioned the hat. Now I got to ask you about it. Uh, are you still eating the hat? And uh, <laughs> it's, I, I love Peter. He's, he's just a charming guy. And he said, I'm okay with the hat. There are a number of people around me who are not okay with the hat. <laughs> mm. um, so See, I think he uh, should just eat a little bit of it. You know, like he doesn't have to eat the whole hat. I don't know if that's if that was part of the promise, but I, he, I guess he, said he said I will eat, eat my hat. hat. Yeah, you're he right. He said I yeah. will eat my hat. He didn't say I will uh, eat some of my hat. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. So he he said uh, he he doesn't mind eating it, but uh, you know, it's it's not a particularly good thing to be putting in your body. So he's he's looking into some options. He's thinking uh, maybe if you get a hundred percent wool hat. Uh, that, that might not be too bad. You know, all natural fibers might, might be okay. He said, I will eat my hat. He didn't say, I will eat the hat that I'm wearing today. Right. That's uh, kind of what so I was I thinking. Think, is he was, I think as long as he owns the hat. See, I thought he was referring to a specific hat that he already owned, but he could pick any hat really. Yeah. And you know, he could, he could go the real easy way and, and do a, uh, one of those, uh, novelty chip and dip. Uh, hats that you know is made out of uh, tortilla chip. Uh, I th- I think that would be a cop out. I think he needs to get a little more uh, uh, verisimilitude in this uh, in this mm-hmm. meal. But there you go. That that's your hat update. Okay, this week we're doing another four short and sweets. So what is that first one, Dennis? First up, Phobos rover begins landing tests. The rover for JAX's Martian Moons Exploration, or MMX, mission has begun testing for its planned descent to Mars' larger moon, Phobos. In late 2026 or 2027, the German and French-built rover will freefall 130 to 330 feet to the surface of the inner moon. This descent is being simulated at the German Aerospace Center's Landing and Mobility Test Facility in Bremen, and involves dropping the preliminary model two inches onto a changeable surface at variable angles to account for the low-gravity environment and the uncontrolled orientation for its landing. These tests, along with significant computer modeling, will inform the two-foot-long rover's final design. I love that. (laughs) That is great, isn't it? (laughs) 
Absolutely fantastic. All right, and next up, uh, the first H3 launches face delays. JAXA's new H3 launch vehicles are being delayed from launch. Fatigue fracture surfaces were discovered in the apertural area of the LE9 engine's combustion chamber as well as the fuel turbo pump. The cause of the fractures were traced to resonance issues with the vehicle. JAXA has determined that they will redesign and retest the LE9 engine turbine. The first launch of the H3, which was originally scheduled for late 2020, is now being pushed back to 2021 or possibly 2022. By 2023, it is expected to completely replace the H2 a and the h2b so they have to do some turbo pump redesigning uh no big deal next uh starship prepares to hop while the recent starship sn8 static fire appeared unusual to outside observers elon confirmed this week that it was normal he also indicated that the company is aiming to perform the first 15 kilometer uh slash 50,000 foot hop next week this flight will test a three engine ascent it will test the body flaps the transition from main tanks to header tanks as well as a hopefully not too dramatic landing flip and finally carbice and relativity raise millions in investment carbice the atlanta startup founded by baracola that has developed a thermal management product called carbice carbon has raised 15 million dollars in a series a investment round the carbon nanotube-based material has tremendously high heat conduction and can be easily applied and reworked, unlike thermal glue. Also in Venture Capital News, Relativity Space has closed a $500 million Series D funding round, which the company aims to use to accelerate development of its launch vehicle, construction of a new factory, and advancing its 3D printing technologies. See Episode 276 for our downlink with Carbice's Baracola, and Episode 255 for our downlink with Relativity's Jordan Noon. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And we have a slight correction from Ben Hallert about yeah. a burst disc on mm. SN8. Yeah, and it's it's slight, but I think this is a good distinction to make because mm-hmm. we definitely got it wrong. So I'll, ju- I'll just read his tweet verbatim. Uh, the SN8 burst disc was to protect the header tank from bursting, not to protect the pneumatics. Also, Musky, <laughs> also Musky said it was a pneumatic failure, not a hydraulic failure. So there we go. Community guesses that the valves are pneumatically operated, which is why it wouldn't detank normally. And uh, obviously the burst, the burst disc, uh, kicked in after that failure. So thank you, uh, Ben. That's the, clarity and conciseness or concision that I uh, have come to expect from you and also that we were lacking <laughs> when we recorded the <laughs> segment. So thank you very much. Okay. So moving on to this week in Spaceflight History then, um, bunch of winners. Mm-hmm. Those who entered correctly were Kristen Lowe, Hot Stuff McTottlepots. I like that name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Friesen, Eric, Vedemark Space Agency, and that's all. And then we have two other people who got full credit, which would be the Greek and Kyle Foster. And the clue was a quarter degree to spill the tea. I'm very happy with this clue. Yeah. I love this clue. So now you have to explain what it means. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this week in Space Fight History is the 2nd of December, 1988. It was the launch of STS-27. This is the mission that we almost lost Atlantis. Um, so before we continue, a quick reminder that astronauts are people and are imperfect, and some of them are amazing, and some of them uh, are um, have amazing achievements under their belt, but have some less than ideal things going on on the inside. Um, so in, in this case... Um, 
the STS-27, or I've also seen it uh, written as STS-27R. Um, but but the crew of this mission uh, earned the name Swine Flight, like uh, uh, like Gold Flight or <laughs> Red Squadron. Uh, they earned the nickname Swine Flight by the uh, the female uh, staff uh, because uh, Commander uh, Robert Gibson, Robert Hoot Gibson, had a very nasty habit of making uh, like animal noises like grunts and snorts uh when he was in a room with an attractive woman wow that's some apollo era stuff right there i would say yeah it it really sucks um i I just wanted to call that out to to be clear like just because i'm going to talk about these people in in fairly glowing terms doesn't mean that they're perfect (laughs) so with that uh, with that out of the way so sts 27 flew a classified payload the mission has yet to be declassified, so details are few and far between. But I, I think we have a pretty good idea of both what the payload was. Um, we know when it was decommissioned, uh, even though I don't have the date in my notes here. And we know well, we can be fairly confident about what happened on, on this mission. But eh. anyway, the payload is thought to be a radar imaging and all-weather surveillance reconnaissance satellite. Um, we believe it was built by Lockheed Martin, and we are all but certain that it is part of a program called Lacrosse, which later was renamed Onyx. Maybe um, we, we believe that they're the same program, uh, but maybe they're just very closely related programs. And this is actually declassified. The uh, SSRMS, the Canadarm, was used to deploy this vehicle, um, which. I don't think tells us too horribly much uh, about the vehicle, but later uh, Onyx uh, vehicles were flown on, I think, Titan twos. Uh, they were flown on a Titan. And so those didn't need an, uh, an arm to deploy, obviously. But I, I believe the, the first vehicles that were flown were all flown on shuttle um, and they were the lacrosses. And then the, um, the Onyxes came uh, later once they stopped flying them on shuttle. But when I say classified, I mean classified. Anytime they did any training or planning or integration, everything had to be done in secured facilities that regularly got swept for electronic bug devices. Boy, when I say classified, I mean highly classified. They didn't even announce when the launch was going to be until 24 hours ahead of time. And when I say classified, I mean highly classified, (laughs) guys. They had to use encrypted comms for the entire mission. Wow. And that will come back to bite us in the butt. So there may have been an EVA on this flight. I personally don't believe there was, but there might have been. Um, and this would have been an EVA that uh, did not make it onto the books. We, I mean, we truly, we're not going to know until the, uh, until the mission is declassified uh, at some point in the future. But it, my notes say we're pretty sure that, they, that there was a classified EVA between STS-1 and STS-98. I, I think I probably overstated that. I think there is a good possibility, a, a reasonable chance that there was. Um, so basically, what happened on STS-98 was their first spacewalk uh, was originally announced as their as the hundredth EV, the the hundredth. US EVA. And right before they like did a little, you know, ceremony, uh, as, you know, as, you know, something like, okay, we have now begun the hundredth US EVA. Like, well, before they did that on orbit, 
they actually uh, corrected, in scare quotes, corrected a mistake. And it turns out that the 100th US EVA, they actually miscounted. The 100th EVA was actually uh, STS-98 second EVA, not their first EVA. So that may have just been an honest mistake. Or it could have been that the the first EVA was actually the 100th, but they had a classified EVA somewhere along the lines, and they couldn't admit that it was the 100th, and they had to call the second flight the the 100th EVA. <laughs> I, I need you guys to weigh in on this. What what do you guys think? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Like that 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 would be kind of hilarious if that mistake was <laughs> quote unquote corrected uh, in that way. But I think Jerry Ross being on there is very suspicious. Being on STS twenty seven. He's he's yeah. a he's an EVA king, you know. And so the fact that he was there is certainly that makes me think there was an EVA. I don't know. That's okay. a, that's an interesting point. I, I I didn't know that. Um, and I'm glad that you did. So I, I would say that kind of you're right. Yeah, that kind of well, points so in that direction. That that kind of points in that direction. And, and given the mission profile, it's definitely a possibility, um, right? A normal spacecraft deployment should not require an EVA. If it does, you done built the spacecraft wrong. <laughs> However, years after the mission, it was revealed um, that they actually rendezvoused with the spacecraft after deployment. Um, and they, quote, assisted with fixing it before they re-released it and let it go on its way and, and came back home. Uh, we, we don't know what happened, um, but the NASA spaceflight forums are, I don't know if it's right to say that they're right more often than they're wrong, but they're right a shocking amount of the time <laughs> when, when we can actually confirm uh, their speculations. Um, but the, the NASA Space Flight Forums uh, did some discussion uh, years ago, and um, they were pretty sure that the fix uh, was not by hand, but by radio. So their determination is that the high gain antenna um, failed to get its enable command uh, for for whatever reason, and that Atlantis had to get really close so that they could uh, talk to the low gain antenna on board and and recommand the high gain antenna enable. Do you necessarily need the SSR mess for that? I don't I don't know. However, uh, uh, another point that that's pointing to not a secret EVA on this mission is that concealing an EVA is really, really tough to do by limitation of the, the spacesuits. They have to use unencrypted UHF communications unless there's also a secret encryption update that they did to the, to the suits that we don't know about. (laughs) Uh, But in any event, hiding the fact that an EVA happened is more or less pointless. You can do an EVA in the clear, as it were, without giving away too much about the state of the vehicle or the the, the goals of the vehicle, the construction of the vehicle. Um, but, you know, who knows? Maybe a, uh, tr- uh, an itchy trigger finger um, kept them uh, from being able to do it. But, you know, I, we, don't, we don't know. Interestingly enough, there may have been a secret classified EVA on this mission. It's just something fun to talk about. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> well, so one other thing, before we stop talking about the payload and start talking about the orbiter, um, one other thing is right after uh, this mission, there was a huge earthquake, I believe, in Armenia. And uh, boy, uh, if you thought that Gibson being a, a 
a misogynist wasn't bad enough. Like, seriously, the crew was gifted um, elastic band pig snouts, like plastic, plastic and elastic band, like party, uh, like masquerade ball style pig snouts because of Gibson. But if that wasn't bad enough, after this earthquake happened, he was at a press conference and um, made a joke about how he can't talk about the payload, but, you know, the first uh, test was successfully completed. And this earthquake location, which killed, I think, thousands of people, uh, was was their first target. And that was with the with the weapon on stun. And just can can you be any more heartless? I mean, come on. That's just cringe. just really I ah boy, really horrible. Don't don't be that person. Definitely behavior unbecoming an astronaut as one might yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Mm. Perhaps it's because of behavior like that that NASA kinda like reined them in a little bit. Plus also the culture just changed with astronauts because they're not, you know, test pilots anymore. Yeah, exactly. I th- I think that's a that's a major influence on the on the astronaut culture. Okay. All right. So on to the orbiter, right? Cause I, I already revealed that we almost lost, uh, Atlantis. So after their first sleep period, the crew was informed of a debris hit that was observed on ascent, right? They, they have all these cameras tracking the vehicles, specifically looking for, for debris. The debris hit occurred 85 seconds after liftoff. Um, and at the time they were reasonably sure that it, the S, that it originated from the SRB nose cap, which is unlikely to be ice, right? Uh, and so they were thinking it was the, the insulation, uh, installed on the SRB nose cap. So, uh, the crew pulls out, uh, the RMS to photograph the thermal protection system looking for damage. Uh, and the reminder, this is before the OBSS, the orbiter boom system was installed. That didn't fly, uh, until STS-114. So when the crew uses the RMS to image, uh, the outside of the vehicle, they don't really get a lot of uh, of good coverage. And Dennis, you, you try it. You tried to help me out here and, and track down how much coverage they got. Um, do, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, just right, you know, as, as long as the Canada arm is, you know, it can't really go and get up close imaging, you know, if you had the camera at the end. I think it's a CCTV at this point. Um, to really be able to image all the different parts of the shuttle, right? And that's what the OBSS was for. And so uh, one thing, though, that I can confirm from one Canadarm-specific document is that it was unable to see the underside of the wings. And then also from some kind of uh, uh, testimony that it also wasn't able to see the leading edge of the wings either, Um, which, of course, is uh, a very uh, sensitive part of the orbiter in terms of making sure that you have that shielded well. I mean, I, I, you can see the leading edge. You can see the entire top surface of the wing from a distance, but it's it's not close enough, right? So, you know, the crew pulls out the RMS and starts taking photos. And what they saw was terrifying. They saw white streaks covering hundreds of tiles. Um, they saw at least one missing tile and they weren't sure about what damage may or may not have been on the leading edge, like, like we just talked about, uh, which is the worst part. But, you know, they, they <laughs> really couldn't see much, but what they could see was damaged tiles. So, so white streaks that we, uh, eventually, uh, traced back to, uh, to bits of the nose cone, 
uh, paint flaking off as the insulation impacted. But, but they also saw pits and cracks and, you know, damage all over the place. And, uh, this isn't, you know, terribly unexpected just, just from their own experience. They saw, uh, debris hit the windows. And in fact, even once they were on orbit, they saw streaks of paint, uh, across the windows. So I'll have lots of photos in the show notes as always. Um, but one of the, one of the photos is just crazy. It shows the, the damage on the leading edge of the wing as the main gear is touching down. It's, it's really dramatic. There are flecks and, and chunks all the way down the leading edge. Um, and I, I know that there was residual paint on the window. I'm not sure if you can see it in this photo. I, I tend to think you can't. I think the white spots in the side windows are, uh, are objects on the inside. But in, in any event, it wasn't good. So the crew knew that they were in trouble. The crew, uh, sent back all these photos and mission control said, don't worry about it. It's fine. And, and the reason for that is the encrypted comms limited the, the bandwidth that they had available. So they had to send back very low resolution images. Uh, I believe they were black and white only, and they were super, super grainy. And so the controllers uh, back on the ground weren't being malicious. They just thought that the crew was overreacting. When they're looking at these photos, they see what appear to be, you know, lights and shadows. And, uh, and even though the crew is saying, no, that's, that's not what we're seeing. They decided to go with their, uh, on the ground, calm, uh, collected analysis from experts rather than the people who were on orbit. And, uh, Gibson w- was pretty sure that they were not going to survive reentry. In fact, he actually told mm-hmm. the crew to try and relax. Uh, and, and enjoy the rest of the mission and, and do the best job they could. He said, there's no use dying all tensed up leadership. Um, so, <laughs> so when they went through reentry, um, shuttles did not have access to heating data from thermocouples, uh, inside the TPS. I think there's two reasons for that. I think a, it doesn't matter if they can see it and B, there probably wasn't a lot of room to put it. I mean, that's, that's a lot of data to try and condense and fit into a very, um, crowded cockpit, but you know, it it did get being back to mission control. The, the crew didn't have access to it. However, they did have one, uh, measure that would tell them about the health of the TPS. And that's the Elevon trim. So here's how this works. As the TPS gets degraded, drag is induced on the vehicle. Um, that drag, uh, is something that can be trimmed out and the computer is designed to trim, uh, the Elevons to handle, uh, asymmetric drag. Uh, just a, a quick recap. Uh, most airplanes have ailerons, flaps, I guess, uh, ailerons, uh, elevators, and the rudder. So in a delta wing vehicle like the shuttle, the ailerons and the elevators get merged into a single control surface called an elevon. And it, you can go even farther and make it a flapperon. Actually, actually, uh, um, even uh, traditional airplanes often have flapperons where you include flaps in, in the behavior. But anyway, um, the, these elevons, uh, are split into two, but they, 
mostly behave as one command. So I say mostly, I'm not going to get into the details, but you know, we, we can think about it as having two elevons, one on each side. And in this case, uh, the damage is to the right side of the vehicle, which means that, um, the elevons would be trimmed right. And, and in particular, that means that the left elevon would be trimmed down more than the right elevon would be trimmed down. And the key here is the difference between the two, the asymmetric trim. I, I don't know if it's actually called split trim, but that's kind of the language that I was seeing. I didn't see enough language to be able to tell if it's actually called split trim. But uh, we, we could call it differential trim or something like that. Uh, during nominal reentries, you see, in general, no more than a quarter of a degree of difference between the two elevons. But a quarter of a degree would be healthy. Anything over half a degree is basically a red flag. That's that's a, a very, very bad thing. But in most cases, you're not even going to see a quarter of a degree. And for context, the uh, elevons are capable of a 65-degree a travel range maximum. I think it's 45 up, uh, 20 down, or, or t- 45 down, 20 up, something like that. And for further context, uh, Columbia on reentry saw a differential trim of, uh, actually, it might not have been a differential trim. It might have been a total trim, but Columbia saw a trim of 8.11 degrees. So, it, you know, that's very far out of a half degree or a quarter degree even, right? And, and uh, a little bit of trivia. Columbia actually had the trim set so far that the computer actually fired up the RCS pods um, and used the yaw jets to try and and assist the the trim. It, it it's super dramatic, but it's it's pretty cool that the vehicle was designed to be able to use the jets um, in certain instances. So on reentry, you're normally keeping an eye on this split trim, this differential trim. It, it's uh, a good indication of of health, right? And uh, Gibson was already prepared to keep an eye on it, but he decided he was going to keep a really good eye on it. And he decided that if he saw a quarter degree or more, um, that that was a good enough indication that they were going to burn up, that they were going to see burn through of the skin and break up of the orbiter. And he decided that if he saw a quarter degree of trim, he was going to have about 60 seconds to do what he wanted. Um, And he decided uh, that he was going to use those 60 seconds to tell Mission Control exactly what he thought about them and their analysts and their conclusions. (laughs) So the clue, quarter degree to spill the tea, comes down to uh, Gibson getting ready uh, to spill all of the tea uh, on, on Mission Control. And so one of the guesses was, was really good. Uh, so, uh, hot stuff guessed that it was related to the fact that they had extra tea on orbit that is now in the Smithsonian. Um, I, I didn't take the time to look that up, but I think that's such an interesting uh, coincidence <laughs> of the way that my brain works. Uh, I'll include a link in the show notes. Um, but, but they're absolutely right. Um, there is a display uh, or, or an object. It's not on display, but there, there is an object in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum's collection uh, that's powdered tea, coffee, and juice, all typical of the shuttle era menu items. And uh, these are samples 
uh, from STS-27, which is pretty cool. I, I think that's, oh. that's pretty neat. So, uh, post-landing fallout. It turns out, on inspection, that 707 tiles were damaged. That's a lot. <laughs> I I just... But I guess it comes down to what kind, or like how much damage, right? Yeah. Tiny chips. Yeah, and get get this. Well, they're pretty hefty chunks, let's be mm. honest. But... Uh, there's a photo in the show notes that's a close-up of one of the tiles missing off of the nose section. Um, so how how much damage? An entire tile was missing. And um, thank the space uh, deities <laughs> that this particular tile happened to be the one that was on top of uh, the L-band antenna. And so it broke away. But the L-band antenna had a mounting plate that was made out of uh, fairly thick aluminum. And this this aluminum plate actually uh, may have prevented complete disaster um, because that plate was thick enough to not burn through. And yeah, the, the thing was just covered in white streaks uh, from the, the paint coming off of the ablator. And it turns out that the the bit of debris that hit the orbiter was two by five by 10 inches. I mean, it, this is huge. This That's is a, a, a huge piece of debris. I have a link to um, two different uh, NASA reports. Um, the two reports are one is specifically um, the um, the investigation board from STS-27. The other one is a general investigation into um, debris uh, sources and uh, the causes or the the, the resulting um, the resulting damage and, and downstream effects. Um, but they they had a really interesting um, point. This is a double-ended error bar. I mean, a, a lot of things in space are, but but this has uh, you design to have an error bar, and in this case, the error bar can be eroded from both ends. Um, tile failures are caused by loads exceeding capacity. Capacities um, are reduced by two main things, human error during installation, as well as chemical breakdown over time. Even if you install it correctly, uh, if there's some sort of reactivity that continues, um, it, you can have a, a fantastic installation wind up having reduced capacity at flight time. Loads, uh, so capacities are reduced. Loads are increased and, and Really, what we mean is underestimated, right? Loads are are increased uh, by incorrectly modeling uh, the forces that the components can experience. Uh, in particular, um, the drag forces incurred by by vehicles ascending through the atmosphere are not uniform. Uh, they're spatially disuniform, and they're also temporally disuniform. They fluctuate over time and different areas have hot spots and different areas are, are relatively protected. Uh, if you don't model these things correctly, you're going to get erosion on the other side of the error bar. Not only that, but the loads experience can be modeled completely correctly. But if you don't account for debris hits, um, you, you wind up getting what we, what we got uh, in this case, which is uh, capacities um, being exceeded. Uh, by the loads that they that uh, that are placed on them. Uh, 
So in this case, the SRB TPS, the thermal protection system, the, the ablator applied to the nose cone, it, it got hit by both of these. Um, first off, it was over-designed by 50 to 70%. Um, they decided that um, the loads that they were going to encounter were much, much greater than the loads that were actually encountered. And so they installed more TPS than they needed, um, which meant that the the TPS itself contributed to the loads. Um, the other end where this was eroded was actually um, environmental. The material itself actually uh, broke down a little bit, or the the adhesive, I believe, uh, broke down a little bit in the uh, salty, humid air at the Cape. I mean, it's you know, it's the thing that we're constantly fighting against. Uh, either your rocket is going to wind up in the ocean or it's going to sit next to the ocean for an unspecified amount of time. And in this case, the SRBs were out in the air, I think for a week, I wasn't able to track down uh, how long and, and why they were out because the, um, the launch was only delayed once and it was only delayed by a day. So, um, but both ends of those error bars got eroded and, and we wound up with this situation happening. Thank goodness nobody was hurt. Uh, yeah. and you know, we were able to use it as a learning experience and we reduced the amount of TPS installed on the, on the SRBs and all, all these other things. But like, you know, ultimately we, we know that the shuttle wasn't a fantastically safe vehicle and it really hurts. I, I, I really want to be able to ignore these things. And to be honest, when I was a baby spaceflight fan, I, I truly did. I, I did my best to ignore how dangerous the shuttle was because it's so darn cool. It's, it's really cool. And the people who flew on it were amazing people and they got to do amazing things. But, you know, ultimately, boy, uh, horses designed by committee turn into camels. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Never heard of that expression. I like it. That's good. I'm going to use that. Cool. Well, yeah, that, that was a really interesting one, I have to say. Yeah. yeah. So moving on to next week, uh, the date range is the 8th through the 14th of December. And what is the clue for that one, Dennis? Clue, next week in 1978, 0 seconds, 0 seconds, 2 seconds, 4,057 seconds, and N.A. Hmm. I don't know if this I, is a terrible clue or what. <laughs> I didn't write this clue, but I am very proud of you. This sounds like a Ben clue. Yeah, maybe. I, yeah, I try to learn from the best. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know. It sounds ominous, but I honestly don't know what it's about. Uh, but yeah, that's next week in 1978. So if you think you have a clue as to what that clue is about, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Okay. Well, let's do upcoming spaceflight events. We got quite a few this time. Yeah. So we're not 100% sure if this is going to fly, um, but the vehicle is Gonyet's M30, M31, and M32. Uh, we talk about these all the time because we're obviously in the 30s. Um, they're uh, um, military communication satellites. So uh, we're not 100% sure if this Soyuz 21B is going to fly. It may, it may not. Um, but if it does fly with its frigate M upper stage, can you tell that uh, my reading is very slow right now. Uh, if it does fly, um, it will be on December 3rd. And we have two different sources, and one of them suggests it'll be flying uh, midnight UTC. Um, but uh, I, I, 
it, it's unconfirmed whether it's uh, whether it's go or no go. So maybe, maybe not. And another thing to uh, maybe or maybe not keep an eye out <laughs> for is uh, Starship uh, SN8's 15 kilometer flight. So uh, Elon's confirmed on Twitter that it will be no earlier than Wednesday, December 2nd. But um, right now you can imagine it's got a window on Wednesday from uh, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern. And so this, of course, right, this is the uh, serial number uh, that has a lot that's, you know, fully functional and wants to go and hop up or fly up to 15 kilometers and do its good proper return uh, and landing. And so uh, really amazing and exciting if that actually uh, happens on Wednesday or, you know, it's going to be happening soon. Keep an eye out one way or another. And the next up is a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that's launching CRS-2 slash SPX-21. Uh, and that's launching on December 5th, 2020 at 4.39 p.m. from Kennedy Space Center, launching from Launch Complex 39A. So this is just another commercial resupply, but it's cool because it's an A-Dragon 2 spacecraft, but there's no crew on board. And I don't know why, but I think that's cool. <laughs> Cargo Dragon for the win. Okay, and that will be getting to station uh, on Sunday. Um, so coverage will begin December 6th at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and the docking is scheduled at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And then after that, in this busy week on December 7th, <laughs> barring a- any slippage, a uh, PSLV launch will be taking CMS-1 to orbit. And so CMS-1 is a communication satellite. Um, it had a previous designation, GSAT-12R, and it's replacing a uh, communication satellite that was launched uh, about nine years ago. And so this will be a PSLV-XL launch. So that's the PSLV with six strap-on uh, solids. And so uh, look out for that launch at 4.30 a.m. Eastern, uh, which is approximately 0930 UTC. And uh, we'll be launching out of Satish Dhawan Space Center in India. And they're they're using a virtual uh, mission command center this time around. Oh, interesting. Uh, they're just going to like be doing it from home. You mean like kind of thing? Yeah, people. Like, yeah, I, I think they're basically uh, going to have silly Zoom backgrounds and everything. Yeah. Wow. No, of course, of course, they're not doing that. But <laughs> okay. And then lastly, we have uh, an Astra rocket launch uh, with Astra Rocket three point two, and this is its second flight, and I guess its first successful flight attempt. That's launching from Kodiak Launch Complex in Alaska, and the launch window for that is seven to ten UTC. So hopefully. take a look at that if you can. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully, maybe kind of, sort of. Alrighty, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. With that, let's deal with the show. We would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, episodes such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can join our discord for free during social distancing check our twitter or reddit for links we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com all right that is all we will see you next week on orbit until then later bye everybody see you